0: And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine. And send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so the Levites, the priests, calmed all the people. Saying, be quiet. For this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. This is God's word. Let me just pray briefly. Oh Lord, would my words and would our meditation in our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you. You are a rock You are our redeemer. When you speak your word to us, you long to comfort us in our affliction. When you speak your word to us, you long to draw near to the brokenhearted. And so Lord, we come to you with empty hands. We ask Holy Spirit that you would soften our hearts. And clear our minds so that we could receive what it is that you have for us. This is a holy moment. This is a supernatural moment. When we hear your word go forth. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Someone once approached my wife Josie and asked, What does it look like when your husband laughs? Like really, really laughs. One of those deep laughs. What does it look like? And when my wife relayed that to me, at first I got super defensive because I'm like, I laugh all the time. What are you talking about? How, how come they don't know what I look like when I laugh? But then I realized that they had a right to ask that question. Because if I'm honest, my life tends to be characterized more by deep thoughts than deep joy. It always has. But especially when I started following Christ, to be honest. I gravitated towards deep considerations of the deepest questions of life. Which is not a bad thing. But I started to frown more and smile and laugh less. Metaphorically speaking... I was more of a faster than a feaster. I started to hit the brakes in my soul for any kind of outburst of joy. It felt out of control. It felt wrong. And all in Jesus' name. I think sometimes we assume that that is right and true. I think we assume that to be serious about following Jesus means to be a serious person. To be serious about following Jesus, hope will be a serious community. But the holier we become, the more gloom we will harbor and present. Steve Brown once said... Every church that he visited, especially in our tradition, every church that he visited, he always wondered if there was lemon juice in the communion cups. And not grape juice and not wine. Where do we get this idea that holiness and gloominess go hand in hand? Well, it isn't in our Bible, it is not in our Bible. I mean, sure, there's suffering, there's fasting, there's hardship, because the Bible tells us the way the world really is. It's a sad, broken place. There's weeping in the scriptures. Jesus, God in flesh, weeps, is a man of sorrows. I'm afraid sometimes that's all that we underline. And so we become imbalanced. And we miss out on so much of God's communication to us. Of His heart. We miss out so much of His heart. We would be ignoring the Bible in its fullness if we didn't see that there is joy and feasting in the midst of our sad world. Not ignoring our sad world. But in the midst of our sad world. Because... Because of God's promises, God's grace, God's presence in our lives. One writer actually adds it all up. And he's just speaking of the Old Testament alone. I'll put it behind us. God built into Israel's calendar seven holidays amounting to about 30 days of feast per year. Add the weekly Sabbaths and the total comes to around 80 days of feasting and rest annually. Add the later feast of Purim, one day, and Hanukkah, eight days, plus weddings and birth celebrations, and the amount of time off for celebration and worship exceeded three months annually. that's just the Old Testament. What about Jesus who said He came to give life abundant? What about Jesus who found that it was good and right and true to feast, even though He was walking to a cross? He was accused of being a partier and a drunkard. I love how G.K. Chesterton summarizes it when he says... Joy is the gigantic secret of the Christian. I think one of the most surprising things in the book of Nehemiah for me is the passage that we just heard read. One of the most surprising things because God's people are being commanded in verse nine. Take a look. They're being commanded. And then gently counseled in verse 11 to stop mourning. And to start feasting. That is surprising to me. Is that not surprising to you? That shocks me. Because you would think that the Levites, the priests, would say, okay, we just finished this building project, God's house is being built, renewal is happening, now get serious. Start weeping. Y'all are sinners. And you're realizing it with God's law. Now weep, 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 more and more and more. And instead they say, Stop weeping, stop mourning, celebrate, break out the fat and the wine. And if you see anybody else who doesn't have that to celebrate with, then send it out and get the party started. That shocks me. That surprises me. I wonder if it surprises you. Derek Kidner, he writes this. He says three times in the passage we just read, holiness and gloom go ill. Holiness and gloom go ill. What we see is that holiness and joy go hand in hand. Do you see it in our text? He says the day is Holy. The day is holy, therefore feast and celebrate. Holiness and gloom go ill, but holiness and feasting go hand in hand. In fact, one of the greatest fruits of grace renewal is not just a holy hunger for God's word, but a holy joy. So from our passage, I think we see two things that characterize this holy joy. And the first is this. Holy joy is godly. Holy joy is godly. Holy joy is not any joy. It's not the earthly joy that so many of us are seeking after. It's really a different order of joy. As we'll see later, it's a joy that can absolutely walk with sorrow. It's a joy that does not ignore sorrow, but it's a joy that actually is contained within and enveloped around sorrow. It's a joy that is actually sourced in God himself, who is joy. Father, Son, Holy Spirit for all eternity. But I'm getting ahead of myself. We're told in verse 10 that it is the joy of the Lord. and So holy joy is godly. Joy is not, in other words, an attribute of God. It is the attribute of God. 1 Timothy 1.11 says that God is blessed. Timothy calls God the blessed God. And whatever you import, when you hear the word blessed, think this instead of what you just thought. Happy, joyful. Our God is the eternally joyful God. The blessed God. When we hear that word blessed, like in the Beatitudes... Blessed is the one. Blessed is the one. You could very, very, very faithfully translate that word into happy or joyful is the one who mourns. So it's possible to experience the joy that God has for you and be in a sad world, in sad circumstances, about sad things. Because the Lord is joy and He gives us that so when we rejoice I want you to hear this we are not rejoicing in spite of God we are, in, we are rejoicing because of God when we laugh a holy laughter we're not doing that in spite of God we're doing that because of God perhaps even with God Listen to this example from Deuteronomy fourteen, verse twenty-six and twenty-four and twenty-six, which is about tithing. If you were to look this up, and you can if you want, but Deuteronomy fourteen, uh, this passage is, a, is God's law about tithing. If there's anything that is like joyless, it's tithing, right? Oh my gosh. But listen to what it says here. It says, Now when the Lord your God blesses you with a good harvest, the place of worship He chooses for His name to be honored might be too far for you to bring the tithe. Listen to what God says. If so, you may sell the tithe portion of your crops and herds, put the money in a pouch, and go to the place the Lord your God has chosen. Verse 26, I'm not making this up. When you arrive, you may use the money to buy any kind of food you want. Cattle, sheep, goats, wine, or other alcoholic drink. Then feast there in the presence of the Lord your God and celebrate with your household. Randy Alcorn, he reflects on this passage and he says this. He says, happiness and joy are not things we are to experience behind God's back. As if that were possible, which of course it is not. But he calls upon them, do it all before me, Deuteronomy says. And I am by implication going to be there with you. I'm going to enjoy it with you. And so when you are partying, I will be partying with you. So holy joy is godly. Holy joy is also our strength. According to verse 10, if you take a look again. It says, then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord and do not be grieved. Why? Because or for the joy of the Lord is your strength. They had plenty to be grieved about. And yet God says the joy of the Lord is your strength. Holy joy is your strength. These people needed strength. So do you. I know I know you do. I need strength. But where do they find it? It's an upside down kingdom we live in. The kingdom that Jesus is building is totally upside down. Our strength is the joy of the Lord. Now, let me ask you a question. Perhaps you've been thinking about this. Is the joy of the Lord God's joy? Or is it the joy that God gives us? That phrase, joy of the Lord, I suppose could go both ways, couldn't it? This is one of those classic examples in scripture where you say yes and amen to an either or question where you say no to a false choice. And in this case, we have a false choice because the joy of the Lord is the Lord's joy and the joy of the Lord is the joy that he gives us. Tony Reinke, he writes, God does not give us any joy outside of the joy He has in Himself already. It's a principle of life. It's a spiritual principle in the Scriptures, but you can't give something you don't have. And when we are given joy in the Lord, it is His joy that you are participating in and experiencing and tasting. And that's how it's our strength. Because there is more joy, Reinke writes, there is more joy in God that He has in Himself, then there is trouble and struggle in our lives. Have you ever thought about it before, that, that God is not just some <clears throat> entity that <clears throat> stands far off, but that God is revealed to us in the Scriptures as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Three persons, one God for all of eternity. Have you ever let that blow your mind? <laughs> I, I very seldom let it blow my mind. It becomes sort of just, yeah, I'm a Trinitarian Christian. This is what I believe. But let it just settle down for in your soul for a minute. The God of worship is one God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so therefore, by implication, God has been communing together. The Father delighting in the Son. The Son delighting in the Father for all of eternity. Joy characterizes the God of worship. Joy characterizes the God of worship. And you could say that when we are saved, we are rescued from sin and brought into that joy by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, in a way, unites us to Jesus So that we now have the joy of the Lord that is described for us in Nehemiah chapter 8. And God tells us that is your strength. I know you're weak. I'm weak. I know you're going through plenty to make you cry. Your strength is going to be that eternal joy that the Spirit is bringing you into. And you will taste it today in part. But there will be a day. For you will taste it in the fall. Josie and I. My wife and I. Both received coaching. And mentoring. From a couple. A retired pastor and his wife. In San Diego. And this past week. They invited all of the couples that they coach. To be with them. For refreshment. And it was refreshing. And many of you were praying for this trip, and I'm grateful for your prayers. It was refreshing. We had one afternoon off, a big afternoon off. And so a bunch of us went to this incredible botanical garden right on the coast. And so you had this sort of amazing vista of the ocean at the edge of this beach cliff in the midst of this gorgeous cultivated garden. And to the right of the garden where I was standing was this old dilapidated home with an old dilapidated gate. And I thought to myself, who on earth gets that house? (laughs) That is an incredible house. Unbelievable house. Has this window that goes straight out into the ocean vista. And what was most striking about that window is that its grungy blinds were shut. And I had this feeling the whole time I was there, who, people who lived in, in Southern California, I'm like, do you see this, everybody? Do you see what's happening right now? Like, the weather is amazing. My thermostat can't touch this, you know? This is incredible. Do you see this view? I mean, they're driving and there's mountains and then there's ocean. There's like every single topography possible and it's like 68 degrees. It's not humid. It's an amazing thing. The food is good, everything's amazing. And I love Columbus more than you, but this was amazing. (laughs) And I'm looking at that house and I'm thinking, Your blinds are shut. What are you doing? And I said, because, you know, as a pastor's group, I said, there's got to be a spiritual principle there, right? That's got to preach. I don't know what. And it didn't take me long to think about it. But there is. When we live with no connection to the joy of the Lord, it's like we're shutting the blinds. the eternal joy that God has in himself, the blessedness of God and that he desires to pour into you. We sometimes say no thanks. This isn't to downplay or negate clinical depression. So don't hear what I'm not saying. As many of us struggle with anxiety and depression. But what would happen if we stopped pumping the brakes on joy, thinking it was less than God, less than godly, and that somehow gloominess was more godly? What if we did that? And what would happen if renewal like this started to happen in our midst well I think a few things would happen number one I think we would embrace the both and of feasting and fasting in the Christian life the both and of feasting and of fasting in the Christian life so if all we have in our life is fasting then we're out of balance with the scriptures obviously we just saw it in our text but of course if all we have is feasting then we're out of balance with what the scriptures demonstrate as well. But the scriptures show us a holy joy and holy joy is unique because the Jesus who says, I came to give you life abundant was also the Jesus that wept at Lazarus's grave, who suffered in the garden of Gethsemane and said, take this away from me, father, the same Jesus. And so there's something on a different order going on. I love how Wendell Berry, the poet and the mad farmer said, he said, be joyful, though you have considered all the facts. That's a realistic joy. Our joy is not naive. It's deeply realistic about suffering and sorrow, but it also is a real joy, not false. I've been helped by the distinction between unsurprising joys and surprising joys in the Christian life. Unsurprising joys are rooted in visible Circumstances. These are like you just had an incredible meal or my wife and I uh, saw some incredible uh, views in San Diego and that is a unsurprising joy. You, you simply look at it and you're like, wow, that's awesome. Or wow, thank you. Oh, this is inherently joyful. I like this. This is great. Thank you, God. Those are unsurprising because they come to us in unsurprising ways. But there is also a second category of joy that we can encounter in the scriptures. And they're what Paul often encountered in the midst of huge trials. A surprising joy. A surprising joy. A surprising joy that's really anchored in things that are unseen And things that are not yet. I'll say it again. They're anchored in things that are unseen. And things that are not yet. And so for instance Ephesians 1 for me is a litany. A list of of unseen realities that we can be joyful for in the midst of sorrow and suffering. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Close your eyes and receive this. Even as He chose us in Jesus before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. To the praise of His glorious grace, With which he has blessed us in the beloved. He has blessed you in the beloved. That means that you are in the beloved. You are in the beloved, so that the way God the Father feels, feels about you is the way that he feels about his eternal Son, the beloved Jesus. This struck me once when somebody asked this question, he said, how long have you known your father? And if you had a decent father, how long have you known your father's love? And so for me, I would say I've I've known it for 36 years. I've really known it for less. And he goes, consider the perfect love of the father that he had for his son for all of eternity, all of eternity that swelling love, okay? That swelling, overwhelming love that He must have for His Son. Now that is how He feels about you. You are blessed in the Beloved. And that, friends, is a surprising joy in the midst of sorrow. Because you can't see it, but it's a surprising joy that is yours and it will never go away. In Him we have redemption through His blood. We have redemption. The forgiveness of our trespasses, praise God, according to the riches of His grace, not our work, not our merit. Grace. Which he lavished upon us in all wisdom, insight, making known to us the sort of unveiling of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Jesus, things on heaven and on earth. And in Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance, not our own inheritance. We have the inheritance of Jesus because we were predestined according to the purpose of him. Him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And before you start getting into debates about predestination, consider this means he loves you because he loves you. There's nothing you've done to warrant his love for you at all. He loves you because he loves you, and that's what Paul is saying. He's Don't pump the brakes on the joy that's swelling in your heart about that truth. It's good, and it's surprising. And you could be going through anything. And you can think on that. In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. We have a possession And friends, this is why our joys of us uh, a whole different order. Because the world we live in, the life that we have, the stories that God has given us is a veil of tears. It really is. And there is hardship. And there's physical ailment. Whether it's mental illness or physical illness. And there will be a day when Jesus wipes away those tears, which implies that the tears don't go away in our lifetime. At the same time, I hear God saying to us, with Wendell Berry, be joyful though you have considered all the facts. It's a realistic joy. It's a realistic joy. Another thing I think might happen is uh, we would start to cultivate the holy habit of seeing gifts in our lives. So this is, Anne Voskamp has really helped me here. She writes this, she says, joy is a function of gratitude. And gratitude is a function of perspective. That's wise. That's really wise. Anne Vast Camp is wise. Because what she's encouraging us to do is to count gifts, to see them. That's a holy habit. It's a holy habit. And, and so what we could do is we could start to, to do that as well. We could see them in our life. And that's not the power of positive thinking. <laughs> That's not what that is. What it is is it's being a Christian and opening your hands and being like, oh my gosh. That that pencil that I just sharpened smells so good. I mean, stuff like that. Being attentive to gifts in your life. Smaller or great. I think also what this could mean is that holy joy in our midst will always invite the poor. Okay? This is very important. Our joy, if it is to be the joy of the Lord, is not a selfish joy. Joy from God invites. Did you notice in this text that, that they commanded them to take joy, but then to also open their eyes and see who doesn't have the wine and fat? Send it out and invite them in. Why? Here's why. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three in one, our triune God, his joy pours out of him and invites us into him. Joy is an invitational joy. Joy is a joy that has eyes to see those who are in the margins and invites in ways that are not patronizing. bathed in the grace that we have received. It's a humble invitation. Not a proud invitation. No way. I mean, think about it. God is Trinity, a community of eternal joy that invites the poor and needy in. That's the definition of, of our God. And we are the poor and needy, by the way. And so a real sign that our joy is from God is that our feasting is invitational. It means that our tables are, are not just hosting friends and family but hosting those in the margins and that's a costly joy but it's what's from God I wonder if you've seen um, or even read the, the short story Babbe's Feast has anybody seen this or heard of the story Babbe's Feast looks like Babbitt's Feast but I had to do a Google search. How do you pronounce Babbitt? Because so I didn't take French. Apparently it's Babet. Well, I recommend you read it. I've been told the movie is unbelievable, though I've not seen it. In it, two sisters of our, of, are of the most severe kind of Christianity. Very ascetic and monastic in their demeanor and disposition. But they have this maid that they took in from France who came to their door and in an act of mercy, they invited her in. And for years and years and years and years and years, these two sisters lived alone with Babet, their maid. And we didn't know this at the beginning of the story, but apparently babet has been sort of uh, not scratching the lottery, but whatever the equivalent was back in those days. And she won the lottery in France. She's told of her winnings, thousands of francs. And with that money, she spends every single dime to create a feast for these two sisters and their friends. All of it. The sisters don't know that that's how she's spending this money. And at first, at this feast, they are resisting because there's wine and there's good food. It seems... It seems excessive. And it was. And it was. But the sacrifice, Babé giving everything, meant for the sisters that they took their feet off the brakes. They saw the sacrifice. The joy that started to sort of bubble up, a few jokes here, some laughter here, A speech here, some singing here, never, ever happening in that house, ever, started to break in to the sisters. (laughs) Imagine this, the physical celebration because of Babet laying herself, emptying herself, draining herself for their joy. Broke them down for one night. And they had it. They had joy. Rowan Williams, he called the film a moving icon, which is like a picture of Jesus. What he means by that is that Babet points us to Jesus himself, who gave all so that we might taste his joy. And maybe all that you need to hear this morning, and I certainly do as well, is that it's Jesus' desire that you taste his joy. Maybe that's all you need to hear. Because joy is hard to come by in your life. What if you just heard that he desires for you to taste his joy? And not in a way that's condemning you, if you struggle to taste that joy. But just in a way that a good friend would call you up every so often and say, hey, I love you. I love you. Don't forget that. I love you even if you have struggled believing it. That's Jesus' heart for you. That is His heart for you. So let me ask you, how does this passage challenge you and your conception of the Christian life? Let me just say this. What is one thing, just one, that like this week or this day that would change if this passage took root in your life. I mean, is the joy of the Lord your strength? That is God's desire. So what if, instead of digging down deep into your own resources, you simply rested in the triune blessedness, the joy of the Lord? What if you just sat down for just a second, considered what the Scriptures reveal... That God is blessed, happy, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And that He is drawing you in to that happiness, to that joy. And we, what if we as a church, were known for our capacity to weep and laugh? Really. Really. What an amazing testimony of the presence of Jesus in our midst because that's who Jesus is. Christianity, I think, frees us to express what is often found at the extremities of life but but, but suppressed, and that is extreme sorrow and extreme joy. Grace enables us to go to those margins and to not be... Overwhelmed, but to be secure in his love. Okay?